0: Welcome back to the Pave the Way podcast, a joint initiative with Rahagiri Foundation and the National Institute of Urban Affairs, where I, your host, Akash Basu, speak with mobility experts and people with interesting ideas around the globe on all kinds of issues and ideas surrounding sustainable mobility and transport planning. On today's episode, I have the honor of speaking with author and urban mobility advocate and advisor, Melissa Bruntlett. Melissa is the co-author of two books, namely Curbing Traffic, that makes the human case for fewer cars in our lives, and Building the Cycling City, which provides readers with the Dutch blueprint for urban vitality. Uh, She's the co-founder of Motor City Life, a platform to promote and enable multimodal travel habits through various media, including writing, public speaking, digital and social media campaigns, both in print and film. She's also the communications and engagement advisor at Mobicon, an independent consultancy firm, in Netherlands wherein she works across European and North American markets focused on the expansion of Dutch and international best practices in walking, cycling, and placemaking to create more human-centric cities. Today, I will have the pleasure of speaking with Melissa on what human-centric and people-friendly cities really are, why it is so important to move towards such cities, and how our cities can do so. Uh, So without further ado, let me welcome our guest for today. How are you, Melissa?
1: I'm doing well. How are you, Akash?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, very happy to have you on.
1: Yeah, uh, shall we just get into it? Thanks for having me. Yeah, sounds great.
0: <laughs> All right. So what does it really mean uh, to be or to live in a people-friendly city? And what, according to you, are the reasons that cities don't prioritize or plan around the creation of such people-centric cities, despite the benefits we know they are?
1: Yeah, I think for me, what I've always thought of as a people focused city is a place where people from all backgrounds, all abilities, all ages can enjoy the public realm with, yeah, without any sort of barriers or feeling like they're excluded from public life. So a lot of my work has really focused on, you know, when I started being a mom and what the city was, ex- was like to experience as a mom myself, but also for my young children and, and as they've grown. But then also, you know, I think about it as, as I age, how am I going to keep experiencing the city? How do my parents experience the city and what can we do to make that experience really, really joyful, I guess. And I think for most cities, it's not that they don't want there are cities to be people-focused. I think we all start in planning and design, engineering, as trying to create cities that work for people. But for over a century, we've been really focused on the economic gain, you know, following the Industrial Revolution, really, how do we really build up the economies of our cities? And with the adoption of the motor vehicle, that was the link of really building an economic vitality to cities, getting people from home to work efficiently. And we've forgotten that there are a lot of other ways to do that. Um, there are a lot of other trips that people take. And so in designing cities, we've taken that people-focused element away from the way we move in order to allow for the commute, allow for getting to work. So I don't think it's coming from a place of not wanting our cities to be people-focused. It's just forgetting all of the other ways that we can experience a city while focusing so heavily on how people can access economic gain and how we can, yeah, I guess, build the, I guess, just a capitalist focus on our cities. And the commute and the car has played such a heavy role in in making that the main focus of our cities.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as you were saying right now, you speak a lot about how you've spoken now about how cars sort of took over. And you have spoken a lot about how limiting the number of cars in a city can help a city to really, really thrive. I was wondering, you know, is it a matter of coexisting with both or, you know, is the active promotion and advocacy of car-free cities or at least heavily reduced car usage really the way forward, you know, because in obviously we in India, us in mobility, we look at examples like. Amsterdam and Copenhagen and even places like Bogota and the sustainable transport and the public transport is so advanced there that it almost seems unachievable where Mm -hmm. we are. To what extent do we need um, less cars on the street to really thrive? And how do we really get there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the idea of context is, is so important within that because yes, there is a different context in which Indian cities operate versus European cities, North American cities, Latin American cities. But it really is, I think, going forward, not just in terms of thriving as individuals, but in terms of a just transition, it's necessary that we transition away from uh, private cars, especially combustible engines, towards a more sustainable transport options. And we know that the most sustainable way to move in our cities is to walk and to cycle um, and then to provide ample public transport to support that. So, yeah, I think what we have to remember is when we make these transitions, when we start reducing the dominance of cars, it's a lot about accessibility for a vast number of people. So if I think of the context of India, for example, where there is this growing and increasing disparity in wealth, there are people that will be left behind if we're only focused on how people can move by cars. People that can't afford it, um, particularly women, uh, underserved communities, underserved people. And so if we really want to provide that just transition at the same time as creating communities that can really thrive, then we have to create spaces that are more walkable. We have to allow for more cycling and we have to integrate better with public transportation. The challenge is, of course, that that requires carving space away from private automobiles, uh, which is the same challenge that Dutch cities have had and to be fair, sometimes continue have. In North America, same thing, but it is possible. And what I've come to learn in speaking with a number of people from Indian cities is there is this grassroots sort of ground level demand for that? There are these pop up programs that come, pop up programs that are implemented by local governments or local advocacy groups, or even from um, organizations like World Resources Institute, ITDP, GIZ that are providing the funding to create this catalyst. So it's not that it's not possible, but it it's going to take time. Um, But what I find really exciting about cities in India, African cities, Latin American cities, is that they're in a space where they can experiment more. They're not as, I think, confined by the same planning and engineering rules that maybe European cities are. And I think that, you know, in the coming years, and even now, there's this recognition that it's important for the quality of life of Indian citizens, of Latin American citizens, and, and of course, citizens here in Europe and North America as well. So. Making that important link, I think, and reinforcing that link, repeating that link between reduction of cars and accessibility and quality of life is how we keep moving forward and championing the leaders that are that are making that message really loud and clear as well.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's a very good point to make about accessibility because a large, actually a majority of our population isn't commuting by car you know, exactly. but all the space that we basically have, our public spaces, our roads are dedicated to cars. I mean, in Indian cities, we have six lane roadways that don't give any space for a cyclist and they have to share that road, sometimes go right in between these cars and they leave themselves in a space where it's so dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. so women as well, you know, don't, they have different mobility needs and patterns and often, and and they usually use public transport or modes like auto rickshaws and cabs and stuff like that and we need a transport policy more to reflect that so yeah that was a that the accessibility part and especially recognizing that star transport policy sort of favors cars it's mm-hmm. not it's not a city of people in cars it's just a city built for cars and recognizing the fact that most people are actually out of them can be very helpful moving forward
1: Yeah, you make a really Um, good point, you know, uh, in terms of like the different types of ways that people move. You know, I I haven't traveled in India to know the exact local context, but I know the cities are quite large. And so that's why, you know, when we talk about Dutch cities, we talk about the importance of the connection between uh, cycling and public transportation. But in an Indian city, from what I've learned from colleagues is that link between quality walking space and the access to rickshaws and the public transport. Really opens up the city. And even though you've got these large, uh, metropolitan areas, they can still access work. They can still access school without having to rely on the expense or knowledge of how to drive a car or own a car.
0: Absolutely. It's just sometimes it's a case of just not enough space made for these people. You know, it's, yeah, exactly. it's not necessarily about yeah. disincentivizing car use, but we also build more roads, and we're constantly trying to make the ease of movement for vehicles easier and easier. Um, mm-hmm. I had Andy Singer on this podcast once, and he talked about the idea of a paving moratorium, which is stop building more roads, right? I yeah. mean, we have the existing roads, and car users should just have to adjust and manage in like within those. But we don't really, we haven't really gotten there. You know, we still keep prioritizing the ease of movement, and in that, we sort of there is a city there are city bus services but most of them are lacking when it comes to reliability or affordability or quality of buses or you know one of the few things that are essential to make it work mm-hmm. um, last mile connectivity especially where i live gurugram is a big problem you know most places where people are dropped off is not a convenient location for them to actually get to their destination then they have to get in a car or then they have to get on a long trip you know so yeah transport policy I think sometimes we feel like you know there's such a focus on cars that these issues that seem so important to solve are often left behind.
1: Yeah I 100% agree and I think the challenge for a lot of policymakers is this uh, idea that they're looking to this more historic way of planning um, but forgetting this that golden thing of induced demand as soon as you build more roads you make more people want to drive on them. And when they have no alternatives, then you, you can't blame them for filling the streets. So, it, you know, it's a matter of people like yourself and other advocates keeping to push to provide this alternative view. Um, but also policymakers recognizing they can't still plan on the status quo. Like we, Our cities just can't sustain it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd also read somewhere you said that unless you provide a viable and attractive alternative you're not going to see people use that alternative, you know. Exactly. And so like we have a street, we have a road outside here. It's called Gulf Coast Road. And we've recently put up a cyclist counter on the road um, because in our, our opinion, the amount of cyclists cycling through there was being heavily misrepresented and underestimated. And we put a cyclist counter and the estimated number was supposed to be about 100 and 150 to a, in a day. Um, and we found that on the first day, that there were 1100 cyclists (laughs) that went through that area. (laughs) Yeah. And I think sometimes it comes to, you know, which like in this, I've wondered this many times, you know, this providing the alternative. And I've heard people say, you know, no, it should work the other way, which is that once we see the demand, then we should create the streets. And I mean, like now that we have seen that there are more cyclists than were initially estimated, there is talks of creating a cycle lane for these cyclists. Mm -hmm. But How do we change attitudes when considering that, you know, we can't put a cyclist counter on every road in the country? We can't use that as a means to do it. I mean, it should be easy enough to say that, look, we know that there are cyclists here. They're probably all over the place. But how do we, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? How do we convince them that it comes from creating the infrastructure in the first place to get people to want to use it?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question and one that I've had From countless jurisdictions around the world is, you know, which comes first? Do we build the infrastructure first or do we look for the demand? And what I often say is that demand is usually there. There's usually like if you see one or two people cycling, there's probably Mm -hmm. 10 other people that want to cycle but don't feel comfortable doing it in the environment in which is provided for them. So by putting the protected infrastructure in where you have, you know, massive, like large roads where you have lots of cars moving, that protection will be necessary for people to feel comfortable cycling. Doing traffic calming exercises on neighborhood streets, recognizing that a lot of the trips we take by bike are under five kilometers in distance. So you can usually do that within your relative neighborhood. So making that easier, but also remembering that even if you only see one or two people using the infrastructure at the beginning, that's not an indication of failure. That's an indication that people don't know about it yet. And you have to encourage them to try, mm-hmm. whether that's through uh, marketing campaigns, through education for people that don't know how to cycle, having group rides to highlight the infrastructure that's being built. Um, so that collaboration between uh, the local governments, you know, the people building the infrastructure and the advocacy groups that are demanding it <laughs> you know, working together mm-hmm. to highlight what's being built. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a challenge. But I think a lot of people, what holds them back is that feeling of comfort and safety. So without the infrastructure, you'll always be feeling like there just aren't enough people cycling because they won't use it because they don't feel safe.
0: Yeah. that's. I mean, that almost has to be the case in this city. I mean, I, I would never think about cycling to work. Um, it's just not safe. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen how you love to cycle. I think it takes a special skill to be able to share the, the road with cars that are going four to five times as fast as you are on your cycle. And absolutely, if there were separated lanes built, who knows if I'd cycle to work every day, but I would certainly try it out and I would certainly want to cycle more. I'd want to use these mm-hmm. roads more for something other than cars. So yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it's a, it's a, it's not an argument that can be made 100% either side. I mean, but I do think especially here and, and, and it must be the case in most countries that if you build the infrastructure, the demand, the existing demand that was there before the infrastructure was even around will start to show itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you I know oftentimes people think of the Netherlands, they think, oh, it's always been that way. People cycle all the time. But part of the message that we communicate in both books and in the speaking engagements that we do is that this is only infrastructure that started being built in the 70s, so 50 years ago or so. And it was because of the fact that this was built that we start to see the number of people that cycle now. The reason that there are more bicycles than people is because people feel safe cycling, and that was because the streets Mm -hmm. were made safer through infrastructure. So. All we hope now is that this can provide the case study, the inspiration for other cities so that you don't have to wait 50 years because we don't have 50 years anymore.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah,
1: just providing that example that yeah, you do need to build it. It, The streets need to be safe for people to take up cycling in mass numbers.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've read, I I, I wrote a little paper on it and I've read a lot about it. And actually most of the major cities that have uh. good sustainable transport network set up never started like that right i think there was some there was a time after the industrial revolution where cars were seen as the solution basically all -hmm. over the world right and now when we look at the cities that have transformed themselves copenhagen um amsterdam delft i believe that's where that's where you live right yeah um and uh, even bogota even paris all of these cities if you read through it, there was a time when they were stuck in similar situations.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, so actually building on that, we've talked a bit about it, which is, um, and especially now, which is that, you know, these cities didn't, didn't start at some great vantage point either. You know, they had to struggle and there were, I mean, I've read about, you know, the stop de Kindermord, which was major in getting it done, like the power of activism and the Dutch cyclist union. I mean, these, these aspects of that time created a big difference um Mm -hmm. but you know considering when we consider it in india there's a part of why it seems unachievable is because it's very different context very different typographies very different population densities governmental structures um general way of looking at policy are very different so is called the pave the way podcast um so i guess i'll end with How do you believe India can pave the way forward to a more sustainable and safe future on our roads, given these local contexts and all of that? I mean, I don't think it's, even I don't believe it's achievable to become the Netherlands. I think there are some things which are too difficult to change. But where do you think a a, a country with the context like India does? What step should we take moving forward to move towards a sustainable future in transport?
1: Yeah, I think... It's important to remember that uh, from an Indian context that there are things that are being done. But I think, um, as you pointed out, the, the context is different. The scale of the cities are different. And so it's hard to see that in the immediate. Um, I think oftentimes in urban planning, we say, okay, we want things to be more walkable, more more cyclable, and we want it to be seen overnight. And that change is not going to be seen and overnight. It's going to take time. But it's I think from what I've been seeing and observing from uh, my colleagues in India is that it's going to be a lot of small projects building over time to show the examples of how you can create more walkable and cyclable communities in terms of not just that just transition, but in terms of accessibility, thinking about the aging population in India, thinking about how kids are moving um, and really highlighting that these are the people that don't drive, um, be th- either through laws or because they've aged out of being comfortable driving. So focusing on, on those people. Um, but then also finding inspiration from similar cities. So I know my role <laughs> and the, the job I've taken on is to promote Dutch cycling and Dutch planning and policy, but. What I've learned, um, in working with organizations like World Resource Institute, ITDP, GIZ, um, and observing, you know, what UN Habitat is doing is there's this opportunity to learn from other contextual cities. So yes, Bogota, Colombia is not, uh, Mumbai, but a lot of their structures, some of their topography is diff, is similar, uh, to, indian cities and so what can we learn from them what can they learn from you uh what can we learn from cities in africa and pr- apply those in context find those champions that are working within similar constraints and moving towards this just transition um, and still look to the netherlands to paris to uh, vancouver for example in canada to find some of that inspiration but remember that it, it's not about copying and pasting. It's really about finding how we can apply it in context to the local cities. Um, I think a lot of the sticking points with very big metropolises, for example, is that it's hard to imagine how you can make something walkable and cyclable in such a large geographic scale. But instead, if mm-hmm. we look at it more at the neighborhood level, if we look at how do we connect our communities to each other, and then how do those communities then connect to each other? Then we can start to build towards that—that that just transition towards walking and cycling, um, with, rather than thinking of the big picture, the massive metropolis all at once. Um, of course they all need to connect, but finding those small wins at the local level that will have the greater impact on the people that live in those communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, hyperlocality also, right? That's uh, like I was reading about yeah. the fifteen-minute city. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I I was speaking to Daniel Moser. On this podcast, and even I, I I was thinking about 15-minute cities as impossible. But he explained how it has to be a network of neighborhoods, basically. You know, it's not making a whole city hyperlocal or making two parts of the city, but just providing a, you know, a a sphere in which you're able to get your needs done, and then moving into, you know, building it around, you know, extensive public transportation network is Mm -hmm. sort of the way to go. I think it's also really important what you said about about contexts which is yeah like you know there are there are some lessons which won't translate from netherlands to india but that doesn't mean there are no lessons that can be learned and when you and you when you look at best practices from around the world there's a good chance that there'll be a city which has um a context that is similar to yours where there are lessons to be learned you know and Mm -hmm. understanding those like you know combine let's say bogota it, bogota's context is slightly more like india's there is higher population density they came from a more turbulence point and they're still not you know it's um like the sustainable transport infrastructure has become a lot better but there are still complaints there are still lots of cars on the road so that's somewhere to learn you know the moving forward process so yeah i mean yeah i, I think there's definitely things to be learned from the netherlands you know like every place can't become the netherlands but That's also not to say that we can't take some of the most important aspects of how they change their cities.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's not about copying and pasting. It's really about finding that inspiration, taking the best practice, uh, understanding why it's the best practice, and then finding how we can apply it to uh, an Indian street, for example, or an Indian community Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that will... Work for the lives of the people that live there because the way transport networks are designed in the Netherlands are designed for the Dutch, uh, experience of transportation or their, the, the lifestyle. Same as, um, the way we design in North America. It's designed for certain, certain ways of, of experience a city. So then when we're thinking about Indian cities, how do people move? Where do they want to get to? Um what are the cultural aspects we need to take into account, and then how do we design in a way that allows them to still enjoy that same cultural aspects, cultural experience of the city, but in a more sustainable way?
0: Absolutely. well, but I think that was all the questions I had for today. I think we were able to cover quite a lot of topics in this short amount of time, <laughs> and uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I think there's a lot of value to be taken away from this conversation for. Um, all listeners of this podcast so thank you so much for coming on my pleasure thank you and take care